Welcome to today's episode of I Really Should Be Working, which is normally a podcast about creative professionals and how they're adapting during COVID and all of that other nonsense. We're going to do things a little differently today um, because no one needs to hear two white people talking about how to get their movie made while the world is burning and there's protests all over the place. So today, instead of a creative professional, I am talking to my old professor, Dr. Todd Allen. He's a professor of communications at Messiah College. He is the founder of the Common Ground Project, which is a nonprofit that educates people on the civil rights movement. And he is, was my speech and debate professor, coach in college. Thanks for joining me, Todd. Thank you. And I was wondering, you said instead of a creative professional, does that mean I'm a, does that mean I'm a non-creative uh, professional? I'm not well, sure. We all have different forms of creativity. Hopefully <laughs> <laughs> it means that you're not a white filmmaker who's trying uh, okay, to well, get the Sundance. <laughs> all right. I think I, I think I qualify in that regard then. <laughs> where you go. So how are things going where you are? You're in central Pennsylvania. The first question yeah. I ask is how are you adapting to the COVID thing? But you know. Yeah, no, honestly, we're, we're here in central Pennsylvania. I, I work at Messiah College, uh, soon to be Messiah University. Uh, so like uh, just about every academic institution in this country, uh, mid-March, we made the pivot to uh, remote learning. Uh, some parts of that pivot were easier than, than others. Fortunately, I only had about a month that I had to, to do that. Uh, but we're still, you know, in the ongoing what does the what is the fall going to look like and 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 how will we plan for that uh and then the state itself uh is going through um you know our phases of reopening and and when we fully reopen what will uh what will that look like as well so um a lot of a uh, lot of meetings uh via via zoom uh, i probably couldn't have told you about zoom uh before before march uh but now i can tell you a little bit more uh, I guess, uh, I guess about it, you know, the toughest thing, uh, one of the toughest things, you know, with Zoom uh, and, and, and shutdowns is whenever people call a meeting, you can't get out of it because they know you're at home uh, in lockdown. So unless you've got another conflicting Zoom appointment, you know, it, life gets a little hectic, but, uh, but we're making it. Well, the beauty with the Zoom things is that they're limited to 45 minutes unless you have the pro account. So it does I, shorten a lot of meetings. Uh, I, I have the pro account and I'm, I'm connected with a lot of people who have the pro account. So, so I, haven't been, I haven't been in any of those short meetings. <laughs> so your big thing is um, you do a civil rights tour, which yeah. I've gone on twice, which is nine days going through the South and hitting all the major sites. So that's, I'm assuming, not happening this year. Yeah, we had to, uh, we actually had three trips planned for this year. Uh, fortunately, we were able to do one uh, at the beginning of March, um, but our one uh, just a couple of weeks ago in May, and the one that we actually we scheduled to leave this Saturday, we had to we had to cancel those uh, for this year and make some alternative arrangements. Do you are you pushing that like to the fall or something, or is it sort of on hold? Um, those were those were canceled. Uh, we we moved the, the one in May. We moved that to uh, to March, and then um, the one for June. Uh, we're just going to do some alternative things, I believe. We're going to, uh, again, have a lot of these conversations with civil rights veterans uh, via Zoom and other platforms. And then uh, I'm hoping to maybe take some people on some smaller trips. Um, I'm near Washington, D.C., and I know many people have, have yet to visit the uh, Museum of African American History and Culture. So we're hoping, uh, hoping to do that. That's pretty new, isn't it? Because I don't think I've been to that. 
Yeah, it's been around, this might be year four, four oh. or five, something like this. Still relatively new, um, but, it, you know, it was really breaking uh, attendance records. Uh, for the longest, it was really tough to you know, even gain admission uh, to the place because it was so popular. Um, but it's a well-done, well-done facility. Anybody who's going to be near uh, the Washington, D.C. area, I strongly, strongly encourage them to go. So, okay, so tell people a little bit about what the bus tour is, because I, I love the bus tour, and I would go every year if I could. Um, but yeah, just tell, give people the, the gist. Well, you know, the interesting thing, uh, just before I give some, some background of that, you were the first filmmaker uh, to, to take part in the tour, and you did the first uh, did. feature uh, on, the, on, the, on the tour. And so I think that's important to note. You caught us at our very, very beginnings. I have some um, of the tapes in my attic, I think. <laughs> I, still, I, still, I still have what you recorded for us. Cool. Uh, so in all the varying formats that you, that you did, too. <laughs> um, but the, uh, we, we call the, the trip Returning to the Roots of Civil Rights um, because it's an opportunity to do that, to go uh, to many of the key southern sites of the movement. Uh, now, we're aware that the movement occurred not just in the South, but when people think of the movement, particularly the 50s and 60s, they think of the South. And so we head to a lot of those key Southern sites. But I tell people what really gives the tour its power is not just being in the places where that history happened, but with the people uh, who made that history. And that's been probably one of the more recent challenges that we've had. I mean, you know, back when, when you uh, went, we were in our, our heyday and we were meeting, you know, such icons of the movement like Reverend Fred Shuttlesworth and, and Mrs. Johnny Carr uh, to uh, Reverend Fred Reese, uh, to name a few, uh, none of whom are with us, you know, anymore, uh, unfortunately. Um, but there's still many, many voices uh, that we meet. Um, I think we're out uh, about nine days now, uh, about 2,600 miles by the time we're done. Uh, and we cover a lot of ground, uh, starting in, in Greensboro, North Carolina, Atlanta, Albany, Georgia, uh, Birmingham, Selma, uh, and Montgomery in Alabama, uh, Memphis and Nashville in Tennessee, occasionally Little Rock, uh, before we, uh, we wind it up uh, back in the north uh, in, uh, in uh, Ohio. So it's, uh, we've been at it now for 19 years. Uh, we are one of two uh, of the longest running, consistently running, civil rights tours in the nation, which is just so funny for me to think about. You know, 20 years, a little over 20 years ago, I didn't know there was such a thing as civil rights tourism. And now we've been blessed to, um, to take uh, hundreds and hundreds of people uh, on this, uh, on this uh, meaningful, meaningful journey. And it's really been powerful even when we look at this present moment uh, of race in this country, uh, the way in which people uh, who've participated in, in past tours uh, have been responding, how their eyes have become open. I mean, I've got some people uh, who just a year ago, uh, when they traveled on this trip, um, you know, wouldn't have been able to tell you much about Trayvon Martin or Sandra Bland or those kinds of things. They go on an experience like this and realize this is not other people's history. This is our uh, history. Uh, and the things that they are commenting on now uh, in the midst of, uh, you know, the murders of Ahmaud Arbery and Breonna Taylor and George Floyd, um, just the impact that that experience has had on them. You know, I'm humbled uh, to have been a part uh, of their, uh, their educational development. Yeah. I remember the first year I went just being blown away by the whole thing. Like 
it was one of those situations where every day you're like, well, this is, this is the peak of it. <laughs> and then you're like, Oh, there's four more days. Okay. And then yeah, even we, the second year I went, it was even when you know what you're getting into, yeah. you just realize how, like how much there is to it. And, and me being a, like a white boy from Maine, we didn't really cover any of that in our educational system. So mm-hmm. it was, do you find like, is that, is that normal with the white people who go on it or was I more sheltered than most? Do you think that's, that's normal with the people that go on it. Um, it's not a thing of, well, you were, you were born and raised in Maine. And so you didn't get that educational history. Uh, several years ago, the Southern poverty law center uh, did a national study on the state of civil rights education in this country. And the results were abysmal uh, across the nation in terms of, this information not being taught, this information not being conveyed. In fact, they, they summarized their report of saying, unfortunately, most civil rights education consists of two names and four words, Rosa Parks, Martin Luther King, and I have a dream. And even those two names and four words are not covered uh, with, any, uh, with any great depth. So it's not a matter of, well, I'm a, I'm a white boy from Maine. Uh, you could be a, a black dude from Pittsburgh and not get um, you know, this quality uh, uh, education. I was unique, uh, I guess, in my educational upbringing uh, because we were exposed to this history and other histories in my educational journey. And I honestly thought this was happening across the country. Now, this was back in the, uh, you know, early 1980s. And I thought if it was happening in my small town that it must be happening uh, in other places. It was only when I went on to college myself and I realized what a unique opportunity uh, that I had. And so again, like I said, we've been really fortunate uh, to then now expose people to, uh, to, this, uh, to this history. What's the thing that you think jumps out to people the most when they, like, the, is like can sort of consistently the most surprising thing to people? Um, I think uh, uh, probably consistently across the board uh, is uh, perhaps the, the level of brutality on the level of violence uh, that was inflicted on civil rights demonstrators uh, across the board. Um, I think the other thing that, that shocks a lot of people in general uh, is that you know, we, we often you know, perhaps mislabel it as the civil rights movement when it was really movements, that there were events happening all over this country, that the, there were a range of organizations who had similar and competing philosophies and ideologies, um, a range of age, uh, people involved in this that, you know, King was not um, this old person uh, that, you know, sometimes black and white footage might lead you to believe he was 26 when this began, 39 uh, when he died. Uh, for, um, you know, we, we draw a mixture of participants. For the whites that go, um, guaranteed on every trip, there's going to be at least one white person who at some point on the second or third day is going to come up and sit beside me on the bus or slide up to me at a museum or at, at lunch and begin their story with how much they're learning, how much they're appreciating this. And I kind of know where it's going to go. And then they say, you know, my fill in the blank, mom, dad, grandmother, uncle, aunt told me not to come on this because all it was going to be was a story of people telling me how bad white people are, right? And how evil white people are. And they said, but I knew that not to be the case. They said, but what I didn't know was the number 
of white people who were involved in the movement. And so they get exposed to the story of a Viola Liuso uh, who came to, to Selma to participate in the Selma to Montgomery March and for that participation was murdered. They get exposed uh, to a Reverend Robert Gretz and Jeannie Gretz uh, who pastored uh, an all black congregation in Montgomery whose good friend and next door neighbor was Rosa Parks. They get exposed to people like uh, Joan uh, Mulholland, uh, who was a freedom rider, or Celine McCollum, another freedom rider, wh white freedom rider, people that they'd never heard of before. And, and that gives them a point uh, of connection, uh, again, to that point that this is not their history or other people's history, it is our shared history. Yeah, we were really, uh, the years I went was pretty fortunate that the Gretzes were on the tour. And so instead of to tell people who have no idea what I'm talking about, um, he was, as you said, he was Rosa Parks's neighbor and he was in the room when they decided MLK was going to be in charge. And, but he yeah. was on the tour with us, like on the bus the whole time. So I just remember sitting next to him for like hours. And the one thing, one thing he told me that really like struck a nerve was that he's told me he was arrested more times protesting for gay rights than he was during the civil rights movement. Yeah. Which yeah. sort of like, I don't know, this just felt really connective to me. Like, Oh, we're just, we're just going to keep protesting for whatever the newest thing is. It's not, it didn't end right. in the sixties. It's ongoing. And now it's ongoing in every well, city a, world right now. That's, that, yeah. That's the thing. When you talk to these, you know, if you're fortunate to ever meet or talk with any of these veterans of the movement, Sometimes it's difficult to get them to talk about the moment in the past that you want them to talk about. Um, you know, so when you're with a Gretz and you want them to talk about Montgomery and tell me what was it like working with Dr. King and what was Mrs. Parks like, um, they'll talk to you about that for a little bit, but then they're going to talk to you about what's going on right here in the, in the here and now, um, because, you know, this was not a moment uh, in time for them. This is fundamental to who they are. And I think as we look at, you know, what's currently going on, uh, in society. For some people, uh, the murder of George Floyd has, has just been, has been their wake up call. Um, my challenge is how long will you stay awake? Uh, that this cannot be just a moment uh, for you, that this has got to be a movement and movements are in, enduring. I mean, as, as Ruth Harris, uh, one of the original freedom singers uh, who meets with us, you know, often reminds us in song, freedom's a constant struggle. Why do you think the George Floyd murder is the one that really woke people up? Yeah. It's not the um, first one. No, it's no, definitely not the first and not even the first that we've heard about in the past couple months. Um, you know, I, I, I've, I've heard a lot of people speculate on this. I don't think it's any one reason. I mean, obviously the, the video helps, but even there we've seen video. Right before, um, you know, I th I think just the sheer calculated coldness um, in in that officer's face uh, as he is choking out the life of another human being, ignoring um, the cries that are going up from the from the crowd around, ignoring the cries that are coming from that from that very individual. Uh, I think that, you know, in, in, in and of itself is riveting and, and, and chilling. Um, you know, I was actually on a call a couple of nights ago uh, with uh, Minnie Jean Brown, one of the Rock Nine, and, 
And one of the things she was saying uh, in this regard is, you know, we're, we're in a midst still uh, of a pandemic. Um, and I don't know what the news is like, you know, where you are, but here for the longest, every news, first of all, I don't think there was any other news happening, but the, but the pandemic, I was like, well, I guess there's no more local crime or even no, no more local good stuff going on. Cause that's all the news was, but you know, they would begin off with these, you know, with these death tolls and new case tolls and other, and, and, and I know that was becoming overwhelming uh, for people and not that you're, you know, trying to flee from 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 bad news but but i think you know for some people they just had some time on their hands um and had to sit with that and see that uh and see it repeatedly um but again you know we could go back to 1955 and the murder of emmett till and the courage of his mother to have that image uh presented nationally and so people saw what the face of hatred looked like but guess what? There was a jury of 12 who said, who let those men go free. Right. Um, so, you know, that's, that's the fear too, that we're in, in this moment, that there could be a jury um, that sees what we saw, um, but does not feel what we feel and lets them go. I feel like if that happens, then they're going to burn Minneapolis to the ground. Well, it's, uh, it's, uh, it's uh, definitely not going to get any better. Um, if, if, if that were uh, if that were to happen, and it's not just um, uh, Minneapolis as well, because again, we still don't. Uh, I mean, I haven't had a chance to see much of the news today, but we still don't have a conviction in the murder uh, or arrest in the murder of Breonna Taylor. Right. Um, you know, things have been a little quiet um, on the Ahmad Arbery uh, front. Um, you know, so what's going to happen? What's going to happen there? And not to mention now, you know, we're hearing in the in the news these last couple of days about other cases that have occurred in recent time, but, um, you know, we're just now finding out about them. Mm-hmm. So. Do you think part of the reason this took off is, I guess, to dovetail what you said, like there's no sports, there's no movies, there's no social events of any kind. So there's nothing, you know, it has the news and mm-hmm. there's no competition in the news. So yeah, I mean, there's nothing the- else to do. We don't have as many distractions, you know, um, uh, going right now. And I say, you know, even, you know, whenever we come out of this, however we come out of this, you know, there are some people, and maybe I said it early on too, but I've learned not to say it anymore. Of like, oh, I can't wait till it gets back to normal. Um, but people have got to come to the reality of, did, did this moment not, not, not show you clearly that normal is not working, that it's not working for everybody? Um, you know, um, looking in the history, uh, you know, when King was working, Dr. King was working on the draft of what we now know as the I Have a Dream speech. Uh, it, it was actually labeled normalcy never again, right? And that's the kind of spirit that we need to take um, as, we, uh, as we reopen, uh, that, that it cannot be normalcy, uh, you know, never again, because um, uh, that's just... What, what was the norm, what has been the norm in this country is not working. What does the norm need to be, do you think? Well, you know, again, I, th- I, th- I think a, a new norm that actually seeks to live out and live up to the principles which we like to pat ourselves on the back and call ourselves so exceptional over, uh, it would be great if we just tried living out, you know, living out those creeds uh, of equality of opportunity. 
of, of justice, of dignity, of respect, of value, right? Um, we've, um, you know, we, we are never going to be perfect uh, on this side, uh, but it sure would be nice if we made intentional attempt, attempts uh, to live out and live into those ideals. What do you think if, if King were alive right now, what do you mm-hmm. think he would be doing or saying mm-hmm. if he was, well, 30, he was 30 years old right now? The, the cynical side of me wants to say, you know, as I've seen say, people say on social media, we, we won't know because we killed him. Right. Right. You know, and what does that say about us as a nation that someone who preached a gospel message of peace, of justice, of dignity? Um, no, we don't like that. Um, you know, I think what what he what he would be saying, you know, we don't have to we don't even have to guess what he what would he be saying. We just need to look at what was he saying when he was here. He talked about the triple evils of militarism right? War, uh, that we are so uh, hell-bent uh, on destruction, right? He talked about the um, po- issues of poverty uh, and the need for economic um, redistribution of wealth, right? And he talked about the evil of racism. Uh, and that evil of racism that existed in 1968 is that same evil of racism that exists here in, in 2020. So I, I think he'd still be speaking on all on all those things, the question is, is would we be listening? You know, I hear a lot of people nowadays who want to quote King, and I'm thinking he would have never been invited to your college or university to speak. He would have never been invited to your church to speak. Um, But, you know, some of us like our heroes distant and dead, uh, because then we can speak for them rather than um, them allow them to speak uh, for themselves. Well, it's a lot easier if you can put them in this nonviolent nonviolent box and just leave him there, you know, in Amber. A couple, a couple of Super Bowls ago, um, King's, uh, King, one of King's, actually his, his, his sermon that he wanted delivered as part of his eulogy, where he talked about how he wanted to be remembered. It was a sermon against uh, thinking too highly of yourself. It was a sermon against uh, the evils of materialism was used to sell pickup trucks. That sounds about right. <laughs> yeah, I don't think people realize, as I had no idea, that that he was, you know, working towards financial reform. And, you know, poverty was starting to become a focus in his messages. It's just, just I think that's a thing that we've conveniently forgotten. Well, you know, what, what, good, what good does it do you to be able to sit at an integrated lunch counter if you can't afford the meal? Right. What, what good does it do... Uh, for housing to open up, uh, if you can't, if you're not being considered for jobs that place you in a position to be able to afford, um, you know, that, that form of housing. So, you know, these are, are, are clearly, you know, interrelated uh, issues um, then and, and now. Yeah, there's like a Chris Rock story about how his neighbor is a dentist. And it's just some white dentist. And he's like, he's not even, the, he's not the best dentist. He didn't invent dentistry. <laughs> he's like, and he, but he's in this like neighborhood. It's like him and like three other black celebrities and this random dentist. Yeah. But you know, yeah. I don't know. Do you see, is there a black dentist who can afford to live in that, in that community? Uh, well, I, I know a couple of, I know a couple of dentists who seem to be doing all right. But I think, but I think, you know, the, the broader issue is, 
you know, um, the need for increasing educational reform so that we don't just have a couple uh, of dentists of color, uh, but that that kids are getting the educational opportunities early to be exposed to all the possibilities of what of what they could be. You know, here we are, you know, 60 years after Brown versus the Board of Education, and we are probably more segregated in our educational system, um, you know, than than we were at the at the height of Brown. Do you think that's because part of segregation is always this idea that people will gravitate towards their tribe, right? I mean, so that's one of the things. Is part of that that white people will gravitate towards their tribe, definitely, and then build policies to keep other people uh, from gravitating alongside. Yeah. Do you think it's how much of it is that, and how much of it is like you have historical historic black colleges, and you're just like, well, I'll just go to the historic black college. Is you see what I'm saying? See, there's ne- there's there the different one of the differences. There has not been a historically black college who where the uh, well we 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 didn't have the governors, but where the head of that institution stood in the door of the college and told white kids you could not come. Right. We've got countless examples, past and present, <laughs> where authority where white authorities have stood in the schoolhouse door literally uh, and told uh, people of color you are not welcome here got a president right now of a so-called Christian college who thinks it's okay uh, to post masks with uh, KKK hoods on them and, 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 and thinks he's representing uh, his Lord and, and Savior. Well, maybe he is representing his Lord and Savior, but not the Lord uh, and Savior. So I think that's, you know, that's, that's the huge difference there. Uh, people of color, you know, sometimes some people say almost to a fault uh, have, have, traditionally been very welcoming or at least more welcoming uh, than the other way around. Now, does, does that mean that there are people of color who uh, strongly dislike white people? Of course there are. I mean, there are people who are just going to dislike people. But I think on the whole, uh, I think uh, last night, uh, Cornell West was talking about this uh, in an interview with um, on CNN, uh, where he just talked about what you saw in the, in the funeral services uh, for George Floyd was not this spirit of revenge, was not this spirit of hate. Uh, what you saw was a spirit of love. What you saw was a spirit of reconciliation. What you saw was a cry uh, for justice, you know, that I think, um, you know, this nation ought to consider itself lucky that they're not hearing people cry out for revenge and cry out for retaliation. I mean, there are some forces in this country um, who want that. Uh, that so-called race war. Um, but I'm of the firm belief that there are more people in this country who really want us to to be who we claim to be on paper. That's what Dr. King used to always talk about, you know, just be true to what you said on paper. And uh, and I think there are more of us who are working towards that end. Yeah, I'm kind of amazed that it's not, the protests aren't angrier based on history and just what, you know, what black people have been through for all of these years if it were white people, they would be a lot more, I think, revenge based. I mean, just look at how bad it got when like white people couldn't get a haircut for like a month. <laughs> they lost their damn mind. Well, you know, you said that, not me. But but you know, the thing that the thing that I that I do that I do chuckle about, you know, connecting this to movement history. I mean, we saw all, all across this country. Uh, particularly uh, angry white men show up at state houses uh, armed. Mm-hmm. 
man, last time some black people showed up at a state house armed. Oh yeah. That was when the black Panthers, uh, uh, did that in, in Oakland. And then we saw all kinds of gun reform and restrictions, uh, coming out then. Yeah. Uh, so it's just, again, the, um, you know, Brian Stevenson refers to it as the narrative of racial difference. So we've got these narratives of, ra- of racial difference, these lies uh, about race that we have told ourselves uh, as a nation uh, that make us feel good, uh, but in the process of really hampering us from being all that uh, uh, that we could be and that we should be. What are what are some of those lies? Well, I mean, we I think the thoughts? I think I think the fundamental lie is that there is such a thing called race, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, that we do, that we have these categories of black, white. Now, now I'm not saying being colorblind, we can see differences in in skin tone, uh, but when we look uh, just at the uh, at this myth of race, um, it, it's a social construction. Uh, it is not, you know, biologically uh, sound. Um, I mean, it has some definite social and economic implications for how it gets played out. But this belief that that there are some people who are superior and others who are inferior. This belief that there are some people, uh, you know, in some, in some narratives of race, that there are some people who are more people than others. There are some people that are more human than others. Then leads you to policies and practices that say some people deserve more justice than others. Some people deserve more dignity than others. And then we build systems around that and laws and policies and practices around that. I mean, that's what slavery was all about. That's what Jim Crow was all about. And rather than have truth telling about that, we want to, again, pat ourselves on the back, pretend like we passed some some laws like voting rights and housing uh, that King marched and we've overcome and that we're post-racial. Um, you know, the, 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 the key here is when are we going to learn to try to start being post-racist? Um, and, 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 and to get to that point, we've got to start telling the truth uh, about uh, race and the history of race in this uh, in this nation. I think one of the things that was, I read this somewhere that I I think it was Italian people were not considered white for a while. And then at some point they just, people just decided they were white, which. Well, yeah. I mean, just, yeah, just that, that, that ludicrousness of how we made up a cat, we made up categories. And so we made up a category called white. And then if you came from certain places and were close enough, we let you be white. Mm-hmm. Um, but then not everybody got to be white, but then some people, you know, got adopted in, uh, to, to be white. Um, but even with that, you know, we, we also then came up with policies as a country like the one drop rule. So, you know, we think about, a, an individual like Homer Plessy out of New Orleans, uh, whose, whose name is tied to, you know, the history of separate, but equal. But if you were to look at him by all appearances, he would appear white but he identified as a person of color. I mean, it just shows you how ridiculous uh, these categories are. I mean, I, I know people who are as light as you. Uh, I'm black, very light. But black, right? Oh. You know, so it's, it's I mean, again, just it, it, it makes no sense, the system that we have uh, and the system that we've allowed to have. I mean, it's, it's um, you know, uh, I'm so excited that in this moment, one of the voices that is being heard again uh, is Jane Elliott. You know that name mm-hmm. uh, very well. But, you know, she in the, ni- in the 1960s did this assignment um, or exercise with 
uh, young people using uh, an arbitrary factor of difference um, being the color of their eyes. And then she created this whole belief system and watched people buy into these negative perceptions and prejudices about people on the basis of eye color and watch people even get divided from one another, right? Mm-hmm. And, and that's as silly as uh, the eye color differences, as silly as the skin color difference. Uh, but we have, uh, uh, many in this country and in this world have allowed themselves to live by that silliness. So what do we do if you're just like, is it education? Is that the key thing? Just learning? Cause are we just blind to that? Um, I mean, you know, edu- I'm, an, I'm an educator. So, right. you know, education is, is part uh, of it. Um, but you know, it, it's, it's more than that as well. You know, it's what do I do with the information once I have it? You know, it's one thing to uh, have a head full of knowledge. It's a whole other thing to seek to implement it and practice it and live it out and allow it to guide the way that you do what you do. Um, and it's about, you know, having uh, uh, intentionality and a desire uh, to change. Uh, I think it's also, you know, part of the more you become aware, honestly, the more depressing uh, sometimes it, it gets. And, you know, and not too many people like to deal with, you know, the pains of, of, of uh, you know, of, of, of depression, of the grief of the, you know, just the, the weight that one feels uh, at the current condition. But, you know, lament is a strong part. Uh, of this process as well, feeling the pain uh, of uh, of another uh, and not being dismissive of that. So, you know, I, I think it's a lot of things that can be done, um, but I also want to be clear, it's not just a matter of what can I do working on myself as an individual. It's not just what can I do then as an individual and kind of get, you know, me a, a new friend of color. Um, you know, interpersonal relationships, yeah, interpersonal relationships are important, but that doesn't solve it all. Um, we're also talking about structural issues as well. Um, it requires a, a degree of boldness when you see something wrong, you know, not to borrow from TSA here, but when you see something, say something, you know, you cannot continue to be silent, you know, when, when people engage in a very prejudicial discriminatory acts against others or say some of the most vulgar or unkind things about others. You know, your silence is being complicit uh, in that. And that's across the board. I'm not talking about, you know, things that, oh, white people need to do this. People need to do this. Well, it's people don't want to rock the boat if they don't have to, historically. I, But you have to be willing to piss off everybody and stand up on a soapbox and say, this is wrong. This yeah, needs I don't to stop. Even- I don't even consider it rocking the boat. I consider it doing what's right. right. And uh, when you do what's right, uh, that might rock some people's boats, but that's not a boat that you wanted to be on anyway. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's the thing where you, you unfriend someone on Facebook and you're like, you don't need these people. <laughs> no, I, I mean, I you know? tell people, I was like, you know, I'm, I'm not a fan, I guess uh, it's what the young people call cancel culture. I'm not a fan of canceling, you know, people, you know, in terms of, their worth and their value, but I also uh, am not a fan of having, you know, my blood pressure uh, go up. (laughs) My timeline this time around has been a little peaceful, more peaceful. And I wondered why. And then I remembered whatever the incident was a few months ago. Oh, I I got rid of a whole lot of people then. 
And uh, so I'm, I'm not seeing what they're saying. And uh, that's fine. That's fine by me. Yeah, I'm, I'm really when Trump started, I kind of lost a lot of people. I think a lot of them just like got rid of me, which was fine with me. <laughs> well, that's even easier. That's e- it's even easier if they get rid of you then, right? Yeah. So now <laughs> it's to the point where it's just like, I see other people's like posts and it's all these dipshits in there arguing with them. I'm like, how do you know? All, how are these people all still part of your like feed or whatever? And then it occurs to me that this is new to them. The idea of speaking yeah. out on things. And so they have all of these closet racists yeah. in their in their groups in their circles, and all of my circle, most of them have gone. Well, and I, you know, I always tell people too, you know, that is not the time and place to to argue. Um, you know, if you really want to have serious conversation with somebody, you make the time uh, to do that, and we've got all kinds of technologies that allow us to do that. Um, you know, as, as you're scrolling through and I'm sure, you know, you've done this, I've done this, you see something that somebody posts, you're like, Ooh, I, I, Ooh, I should respond to that. Um, I generally don't because I'm thinking, well, they posted it and that's kind of what they're thinking. So I kind of know where they're coming from. And, you know, is my post back going to cause an aha moment for them? Probably not. Uh, depending on the relationship I have with the person, though, um, you know, I might reach out privately and, and say, hey, you know, I want to ask you about this or uh, but, you know, sometimes uh, I don't want to say ignore. Um, but but what I do say um, is you, know, you don't have to attend every fight you're invited to. Right. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, you pick uh, and you choose um, the fights that you attend. <laughs> Sometimes what I do is I post something and then when people start arguing about it, I turn off the notifications to that post Yeah, and they can just keep arguing and I yeah. go yeah. on. Yeah. Oh yeah. I've done, I've done that. I've done that too. Um, what's really interesting, you know, especially when you're talking about matters uh, involving, you know, like law enforcement and communities of color, this doesn't happen as much anymore, but uh, early on, I can't remember which incident it was. Again, the unfortunate thing is there's been so many. Uh, but I posted something and I had two friends going at each other, one white, one black, um, and each, you know, arguing that, you know, that's easy for you to say, come, you know, walk a day in my shoes and da, 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 da. Funny thing is they're both in law enforcement. And I'm like, had y'all taken the time to talk before you attacked, you might've realized one of you is a city police officer. One of you is a retired state trooper. You've actually got more in common here than what you think but it was just like argh, you know i had someone yell at me the other day and they said uh because talking about like how police are overfunded and whatnot and it's like well if you ever left maine or went to a big city <laughs> like portland or bangor <laughs> you wouldn't think that and i'm like dude you have no idea how <laughs> a little yeah, time i spent in maine <laughs> we we sometimes you know just jump to assumptions uh about people and and again, you know, taking the posture of I'm right, you're wrong, and I'm going to tell you how right, how right I am and how wrong you are, as though the person that you're arguing with, and like I said, a lot of times you don't even know them, right? Right. The person you're arguing with now, all of a sudden, yeah, well, okay, now you've convinced them. I mean, you know, you were involved in argument and, and debate. You know that's not how at least effective debate works. <laughs> no. 
No, the effective debate, in my experience, is to attack their sources as uncredible and get them thrown out. <laughs> <laughs> and then they're just left with nothing. And they're like, Shit. But, but, but remember, attacking their sources is more than saying fake news. Right. Right. <laughs> I'm glad I'm not teaching debate right now because I can see somebody, probably someone like you, smart Alec, walking in and saying, mm-hmm. well, I'm just going to consider all their sources fake news. Next. <laughs> That probably wouldn't go very well. <laughs> yeah. All right. So here's the big question I have is, so if you, obviously going on the tour is fantastic, but people don't have 10 days, nine days, right. a lot. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So if you want, you know, say if you have kids or whatever, and you want them to be educated and you've got a three day weekend or whatever, where would you tell them to go? Well, you know, again, it depends, obviously, geographically where right. you are uh, in the country. Uh, if you do have the opportunity to be uh, near the nation's capital uh, and go to Washington, D.C., uh, obviously, the Museum of African-American History and Culture uh, is a place to go. There's also uh, the Museum of the American Indian uh, and the Holocaust Museum. I mean, you're going to hear gripping stories, um, you know, um, that take you into the lives of, of other people. Um, but, you know, even if one is not um, having the opportunity to travel, there have been so many great books written, documentaries done, children's books written uh, on the movement and varying movement figures. I mean, a simple, you know, Google search uh, will pull up a lot of information. Now, again, just because it pulls up a lot of information doesn't mean it's all quality uh, information, you know, so you want to be able to sift through that. But um, you know, I'm happy as well, you know, for anybody who finds themselves watching this, if you, they wanted to reach out to me for some ideas. In fact, I had somebody, uh, just text me before this, uh, before this call, uh, to recommend a couple of books, uh, for them on a particular civil rights topic. Um, but there are plenty of resources out there and, and easy access, uh, to, uh, to the information. What's, I know there's a bunch of stuff on because a lot of the streaming services are curating sort of yeah. lists. Like yeah. what's something that you would say, because it's a little overwhelming. You look at it and you're like, oh my goodness. Like, is it yeah. a thing, the 13th? Or yeah. is not the help? I know that. <laughs> please, please not the help or a green book. Uh, well, uh, yeah, you know, nothing, nothing like that. Yeah, no, there, there have been some great uh, documentaries uh, out. Uh, you mentioned the 13th uh, by Ava DuVernay. Uh, has been a very powerful and compelling one. Um, you know, I tell people, you know, look at some of the work that Brian Stevenson's doing at the Equal Justice Initiative, uh, headquartered out of uh, out of Montgomery, Alabama. You know, Brian's work tells a compelling, well, Brian's the one who coined that phrase about the narrative of racial difference, right? And he looks at that narrative through uh, the criminal justice system and how, you know, he says slavery didn't end in this country, it just evolved, right? Um, how we went from the period of of slavery uh, to Jim Crow and what he calls racial terror lynchings, right, um, to mass incarceration, um, you know, right to you know where we are, you know, now uh, with current tensions between communities of color and law enforcement. His book, Just Mercy, um, which has now also been made into an award-winning film, uh, is another great resource. You know, if people are thinking about um, stories to read in terms of what's going on, let's say, in the legal uh, community um, as far as experiences of people of 
of color are concerned. There's a gentleman by the name of Anthony Ray Hinton, uh, who's actually spent 30 years on death row in the state of Alabama for a crime he did not commit. Um, he was one of the men who was ultimately exonerated um, through the work of Brian Stevenson and the Equal Justice Initiative. He has a great uh, autobiography uh, titled um, The Sun Does Shine, uh, which is a very gripping story. Um, another good friend, a fellow by the name of Robbie Tolan, was a young man out of Houston, uh, Texas, uh, who oh, about 12 years ago now, New Year's Eve, Robbie and a co his cousin were returning home uh, to his parents' residence uh, when law enforcement came upon them, uh, drew guns, uh, accused them of driving a stolen vehicle, come to find out the officer typed the plate information in wrong. Robbie ends up shot uh, by one of these officers who feared for his life. Um, you know, Robbie's case, uh, fortunately he lives, right? goes through the court system, family literally goes about bankrupt, um, trying to fight for justice, and he's still lost, right? Robbie still walks around to this day with some of that bullet still in him, right? But has written a, a, a great story called No Justice, uh, which tells his story. So, I mean, there are plenty of accounts. You know, I usually tell people when they say, what should I be reading? And uh, I say, well, it depends on what your interests are. Uh, but you definitely ought to be reading something and watching something um, because that's part of that process that we said earlier about getting, getting informed. So there's, there's plenty of information out there. And like you said, you know, people are posting lists all over the place. It can be overwhelming. Um, um, maybe it's not as overwhelming for me because this is the work that I do, but, but there's plenty, plenty of good information out there. Um, and when people say, well, where should I start? I say start at the beginning. Start at the beginning. I mean, the key is just start. Right. Uh, just start. You got to enter into the conversation. Time is out for thinking this conversation doesn't involve you uh, or that you've got no place. Uh, we've all got a place uh, if we uh, if we if we love humanity and if we love our country. Yeah, I mean one one thing I heard recently that I thought was kind of interesting is people and. Feel free to tell me this is stupid. Um, is that when, when the co with the COVID thing and when they were starting to send people back, open up and send people back that people, someone, I forget who it was, equated this sort of $10 an hour, quote unquote, essential workers as, as a form of slavery or maybe an extension of slavery where, you know, you've got to go back or because we're kicking you off unemployment and it's not classical slavery, but maybe a new version of it where, and that's across racial lines well, it's just for people. It's, it's, it's interesting that, you know, the very people who, you know, are fighting for a livable wage uh, and being um, denied that and, and, and told that they're not worthy of it. The moment, the moment a crisis happens, we call them essential. Right. Now, how can you be essential, but not worthy? Mm -hmm. um, you know, and there's still people uh, who have this uh, belief that uh, that there are uh, occupations and positions that are beneath them, but somebody has to do that in service to me and my right. needs. And again, that's just that devaluing uh, of uh, of uh, of humanity that uh, it cannot be the 
the normal that we return to, right? You know, people right. are out now, you know, clapping for, you know, the sanitation workers and the UPS drivers and the, and the store clerks. Um, but, you know, how would you react when UPS is late with your package a couple of months from now? Will you be out there, you know, cursing that, that driver? Uh, when the sanitation company won't haul away that extra piece of trash that you put out, when the grocery store is out of your favorite type of cheese. <laughs> well, that's, you know. <laughs> My big problem with my grocery store right now is that there's one bagger who drives me insane and, and like tells all of these like just awful jokes. He annoys the hell out of me. And now I can't pick which aisle I go in. <laughs> Because <laughs> there's this whole system. They're like, well, you're going to go in aisle four now. And I'm like. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm probably going to get in trouble with some people because, you know, I'm one of those folk who do the self-checkout mm. uh, kind of thing. I used to be a bagger. Um, but as much as I've been going to the store now, it reminds me of why I wasn't that good uh, of a bagger. Uh, so, you know, I do the best I can. <laughs> I don't see. Yeah, I don't do the self-checkout because I feel like that's a thing that's gives Walmart or whoever an excuse not to hire somebody. Yeah. You know, cause that's like two people who could be working. They could be working that register or whatever. And I'm like, well, this is my small way of, of Oh yeah. No, no, I tr trust me. I get it. You know, people, people tell me that all the time. I'm like, and I still sometimes even with self-checkout still see that they only have three, three lanes open. Uh, <laughs> so I don't know what the flaw in the system is. <laughs> Uh, I was more freaked out the other day. My grocery store started several months ago. Um, they have these robots. I don't know if they've got this up in uh, up where you are yet, but robots that uh, come along and I don't know if they clean or if they just signal like when something needs to be clean and they stand there and till an actual human being can come and take care of whatever the pressing matter like is. Like a robot? No, I, I mean, I, I let me see if, uh, I'm, I'm gonna I'm gonna send you one of these pictures. I, I, I'll, I'll send it. To, I'll send it to you later. You can see. It. But it was so funny. I looked at the robot in the one store the other day and actually had a mask uh, on the robot. And I thought oh, that's kind of cute. Um, the robots still don't understand social distancing though. Um, right. But then I was I was in another uh, branch of that same uh, grocery store chain the other day, and their robot was not wearing a mask, and I felt some kind of way about that. You know, <laughs> I've talked to somebody at, at corporate about these robots. I went, yeah, I went into a convenience store here the other day and there was not a single person in there with a mask on. I turned right around and left. I'm like, nope, nope, nope. This is not a good idea. One thing I wanted to say like that I meant to earlier was with the museums on the tour, the Memphis one for me, if you're anywhere near yes. Memphis, yes. like to me, that was the big, the best one. Um, and I think, and I, think actually, I, I think since the time you've gone, they've, they've renovated it. Oh, really? Mm -hmm. Because you just go through, it's like this history, for anyone who's never been there, it's the Lorraine Motel, and it's this history of you're sort of walking through, and you're inside, and it's the history of the movement and all these things, and then you get to um, King's room for the day he was shot, and it's sort of intact, or they've recreated it to what it looked like then, and then you realize that you're standing on about four feet away from where he was shot. And to me, that was just a holy shit moment. Yeah. You know, so interesting that you mentioned that. Yes. Yeah, so it has been renovated since the time you, you went um, because for a year it was closed down while they were kind of redoing the interior. Mm -hmm. uh, but one of the remarkable things that they did, you know, they never 
gave the general public access to the balcony. Right. And so for a year, I forget how many years ago this was now, they gave the general public access to the balcony. But I still thought, well, you know, they'll have limited numbers go up. You'll stand at a certain distance from where King was standing. You'll look over there and then kind of turn around and go back down the steps. Mm-hmm. No, you had you had access to the full balcony. You could literally stand wow. where he was standing. And I know the first time that I went um, and stood in that spot, it was on a, a it was on a um, it's a cool early spring morning and so there weren't many people at the museum and i was standing in that space by myself and you just talk about having chills right um, knowing what happened there um and then you were literally standing right uh right there again you know just a way of bringing the the history uh, to life that that the best film even though there's some great films out there the best book though there's some great books out there just can't do so yeah i mean i'm with you if you can if you can travel uh, to any of these places. And, and, and again, even if some of these are geographically a little too distant uh, for you, I encourage people, look up what was going on in your area. There's starting to be more and more of these local uh, museums and exhibits telling uh, civil rights histories uh, in your respective area. For some people, um, you know, I have a good, uh, good friend uh, and colleague, former colleague, who was really fascinated with the Underground Railroad. And so, you know, he kind of took the concept of what I was doing on the civil rights side of the 50s and 60s. Was like, you know what, I want to visit Underground Railroad uh, sites. And so, you know, there's, again, just plenty out there. It's, it's having the, um, uh, the willingness and, desi- and, the, and the desire to learn. And there's really something powerful about standing in a spot where history happened. Like it, we, whether it's the Lorraine or um, I remember pretty vividly standing in like, a crater of what was a clan bomb at the Gretz house, I, I believe. Mm-hmm. Um, but just, you know, you wouldn't, once you know that that's what happened there, you're just like, Oh, Oh, wow. And you wouldn't and you, think it would affect you, but it does. Yeah, and, you, and you were there with him. Right. Right. And, yeah. And I'm sure he's probably telling you now, was that the first bombing or the second <laughs> bombing? Right. And I just like, just kind of so casual. I mean, you know, obviously it's serious, right. but just like, you know, thinking about it, that, that, that you have something that you believe in so strongly uh, that you're willing to die mm-hmm. uh, for that. You know, that's, uh, that's a special kind of uh, spirit and, and boldness and determination. Yeah, and it's hard. I think it's really hard to really dig into this stuff and not have it impact you in a profound way. Mm-hmm. Like, I, I can't imagine going back like going on a tour like this or going to these museums or talking to these people and then like going home and putting up a confederate flag well you know i don't think i've had any but well i better not say i don't have any i've had some people who uh you know good good friend of mine uh, who's gone on now michael barbado used to talk about you know some people have this unique ability to have the experience but miss the meaning Mm-hmm. And so I have, unfortunately, had some people who've had this experience, this very intense experience, and have completely missed the meaning. Mm-hmm. And so they come back, and uh, they don't vote. Uh, they come back, and uh, you, you know they only focus on on looting, right? Um, not not on the murder of George Floyd. Uh, so it is possible. Thankfully, that doesn't happen with with many people, but 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 it does uh, it does continue to happen. Yeah. All right. So I have one more question for you. 
Yes. Very important question. <laughs> I know you're a big Laker fan. Oh, I thought so, the question was I thought the question was when am I coming to Maine? Well, no. No, so the big question is NBA's coming back. The Lakers, how many games do they lose to the Celtics in? <laughs> uh, we don't lose. We don't lose to the Celtics, man. We don't lose to the Celtics. Uh, LeBron is is going to lead us on, uh, and I'm a firm believer. And we owe it to we owe it to the to the life and legacy of Kobe. Uh, so you know we're going we're going to be a force to be reckoned with. Uh, if anything, man, I, I might start saying now there was some some conspiracy theory because we were marching along there, man, mm-hmm. and then. You know that's where we brought this NBA season to a to a halt. But uh, but we'll we'll uh, we'll we'll be back. Uh, I don't know if you've been watching uh, uh, the uh, the the repeated replays of the thirty for thirty uh, on the Lakers and Celtics. I mean, classic series, classic yeah. series. Um, I have much much respect uh, for for uh, for Larry Bird uh, to name one, but uh, you know much dislike for the Celtics as a whole. <laughs> I knew the first the moment where I knew the COVID thing was going to be okay was when Marcus Smart got it, and then <laughs> I was like, COVID has nothing on Marcus Smart. <laughs> uh, All right, yeah. well, thank you, thank you so much, man. Thank you, man. So good, uh, so good to see you, man, and and great to see all that you're continuing uh, continuing to do. Uh, and I will, I will get back to Maine. You know, one of these days soon. Awesome. You can double the number of black people in the state. <laughs> we'll I, do. I remember we went to a Sea Dogs game and it was the only black people you'd seen <laughs> in the state this of Maine. Is, this is true. This is true. <laughs> All right. So my guest today was Dr. Todd Allen. The returning to the roots of civil rights is the bus tour. If you get a chance to go to, on that, it's fantastic. It sells out very quickly. Um, and the Common Ground Project is the organization that does that. And you can find him on the internet. And he will tell you what book to read or what documentary <laughs> to watch. Thank you so much for, for joining me. Thank you.